Today on Categorical Imperatives, we have got some good news regarding the Biden vaccine mandate court challenge out of the Fifth Circuit. So I'm going to be going over the background of the case. I'm going to discuss the significance of the recent stay that came through on Friday evening and then discuss what we can expect moving forward as far as the circuit court lottery, the possibility of a permanent injunction, and when we can reasonably expect to see this case before the Supreme Court. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Locking Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you are new to the program, I would especially like to welcome you. Uh, this is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. Now, as I said, we're going to be talking about the uh, Biden vaccine mandate, that is the, uh, the OSHA ETS emergency standard that he is trying to put in place. And I am going to uh, be breaking it down for you here uh, in a way that is hopefully uh, easily understandable to lawyers and non-lawyers alike. So let's just jump right into it, shall we? All right. So the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit has extended its stay on the Biden administration's COVID-19 vaccine mandate for private employers, which the unanimous three-judge panel called fatally flawed and staggeringly broad. The stay, which the court issued on Friday evening, says OSHA shall take no steps to implement or enforce the mandate until further court order. It is officially a preliminary pause pending adequate judicial review of the petitioner's underlying motions for a permanent injunction. But the court left little doubt that it would grant those motions, saying that the petitioner's challenge to the mandate shows a great likelihood of success on the merits. Now, the appeals court was responding to several lawsuits challenging the vaccine mandate, including complaints by businesses, employees, and five states, uh, specifically Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas, and Utah, all of which are now consolidated under the heading of BST Holdings v. OSHA. So the Fifth Circuit originally issued a stay on November 6, the day after the Occupational Safety and Health Administration published an emergency temporary standard demanding that companies with 100 or more employees require them to be vaccinated against COVID-19 or wear face masks and undergo weekly testing. The, and that stay said that ETS raised serious, uh, grave statutory and constitutional issues, which the new order, uh, written by Judge Kurt Engelhart and joined by Judge Edith Jones and Stuart Kyle Duncan, spells out in detail. Now, the court flatly states that the ETS grossly exceeds OSHA's statutory authority adding that the mandate raises serious constitutional concerns. It says that the Occupational Safety and Health Act, the purported legal basis for the mandate, was not 
and likely could not be either under the Commerce Clause and the Non-Delegation Doctrine intended to authorize a Workplace Safety Administration in the deep recesses of the federal bureaucracy to make sweeping pronouncements on matters of public health affecting every member of society in the profoundest of ways. So the ETS option, which OSHA rarely uses, allows the agency to circumvent the usual rule-making process, which typically takes years, by imposing regulations that take effect immediately upon publication. But to avoid the public notice, comment, and hearing requirements that ordinarily apply to OSHA rules, the agency has to identify a grave danger to employees from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful, or from new hazards. It also has to show the emergency standard is necessary to protect employees from such danger. Now, the Fifth Circuit notes that the statutory requirements for an ETS are very difficult to satisfy. In its 50-year history, OSHA has issued just 10 ETSs, Judge Engelhart writes. He points out that six were challenged in court, and only one of those survived. The reason for the rarity of this form of emergency action is simple. The courts and the agency have agreed for generations that extraordinary power is delivered to OSHA under the emergency provisions of the Occupational Safety and Health Act, so that power should be delicately exercised and only in those emergency situations that require it. This is one of those situations, too, where uh, anytime you see the government say, we're not sure if we have the authority to do this, but we're going to try, and then they come back later and say, oh, yeah, we, we have the authority, and they pull up some obscure law uh, from 70 years ago, like the Biden administration did, that's generally a pretty good sign that they don't have the authority. They should not have to go back to something this uh, esoteric uh, and, and just oddly particular and peculiar uh, to put this in place if it was a valid uh, use of their power. But uh, that's neither here nor there, I suppose. Now, the court went on to say that OSHA's ETS is anything but a delicate exercise of this extraordinary power. The Fifth Circuit went on to say that rather than a delicately handed, handled scalpel, the mandate is a one-size-fits-all sledgehammer that makes hardly any attempt to account for differences in workplace and workers that have more than a little bearing on workers' varying degrees of susceptibility to the supposedly grave danger the mandate purports to address. Now, the court thinks it is doubtful that the COVID-19 virus will qualify as a toxic or physically harmful substance or agent. A key point of contention in the government and petitioner's briefs that preceded this ruling, the judges were also skeptical that the virus counts as a new hazard. They say that Texas made a compelling argument that the phrase should be understood in a context that excludes airborne viruses. Now, to avoid giving unintended breath to the act of Congress, courts rely on a principle called nociter asosis. And this, uh, the legal definition of it, it is a doctrine or rule of construction, and the meaning 
of an unclear or ambiguous word in a statute or a contract should be determined by considering the words with which it is associated in the context. Essentially, a word is known by the company it keeps. Now, Engelhart writes that here, OSHA's attempt to shoehorn an airborne virus that is both widely present in society and is thus not particular to any workplace and non-life-threatening to a vast majority of employees into a neighboring phrase connoting toxicity and poisonous is a transparent stretch. He adds that any argument OSHA may make that COVID-19 is a new hazard will directly contradict OSHA's prior representation to the D.C. Circuit that there can be no dispute that COVID-19 is a recognized hazard. Now that point aside, the Fifth Circuit says OSHA has failed to make the case that the 84 million workers covered by the ETS are actually exposed to the grave danger that it perceives. The government argued that OSHA had met this test by presenting myriad studies of COVID-19 clusters and outbreaks in workplaces as evidence of workplace transmission and exposure. Now, the argument misses the mark, Judge Engelhart writes, because OSHA is required to make findings of exposure or at least the presence of COVID-19 in all covered workplaces. He says OSHA cannot possibly show that every workplace covered by the mandate currently has COVID-positive employees, or that every industry covered by the mandate has or had or will have outbreaks. So, does COVID-19 pose a grave danger in all those settings? Well, the mandate itself concedes that the effects of COVID may range from mild to critical. And it adds that the threat from COVID-19 depends on transmission trends which have varied since the president announced the general parameters of the mandate in September and vaccination rate among employees. Now, for more than 78% of Americans age 12 and over who are either th fully or partially inoculated against it, Judge Engelhart wrote, the virus poses, and the administration assures us, little risk at all. Now, the court thinks that OSHA's prior positions regarding communicable diseases further belie the notion that COVID-19 poses any kind of emergency that allows OSHA to take the extreme measures of an ETS. The ETS, it said, makes no serious attempt to explain why OSHA and the president himself were against vaccine mandates before they were for one. And in 1989, when OSHA issued a standard addressing bloodborne pathogens to which employees could be exposed in the course of their work, OSHA rejected a vaccination mandate, saying health in general is an intensely personal matter, and OSHA prefers to encourage rather than try to force by government coercion employee cooperation in a vaccination program. Now, when OSHA issued a COVID-19 ETS for the healthcare industry in June of 2021, it likewise 
did not deem mandatory vaccination appropriate or necessary. Last December, President Joe Biden said he did not think COVID-19 vaccination should be mandatory, a position that administration officials reiterated as late as July and August of this year, very shortly before the White House announced the OSHA vaccine mandate in September. Now, even assuming that the COVID-19 poses a grave danger in the workplace, the Fifth Circuit said, OSHA has not shown its ETS is necessary to address it. OSHA tried to satisfy that criterion by exempting employees who work exclusively outdoors or who work from home or other remote locations where they do not come into contact with other employees, but the courts view that that attempt at tailoring the ETS is inadequate. Now, Judge Engelhart wrote that the mandate is staggeringly overbroad, applying to two out of three private sector employees in America in workplaces as diverse as the country itself, and that the mandate fails to consider what is perhaps the most salient fact of all. The ongoing threat of COVID-19 is more dangerous to some employees than to other employees. All else being equal, a 28-year-old trucker spending the bulk of his workday in the solitude of his cab is simply less vulnerable to COVID-19 than a 62-year-old prison janitor. Likewise, a natural, immune, unvaccinated worker is presumably at less risk than an unvaccinated worker who has never had the virus. The mandate covers virtually all industries and workplaces in America with little attempt to account for the obvious differences between the risks facing, say, a security guard on a lonely night shift and a meatpacker working shoulder to shoulder in a cramped warehouse. OSHA has failed almost completely to address or even respond to much of this reality and common sense, the court said. At the same time, the court says, the ETS also manages to be under-inclusive, since it does not apply to businesses that employ fewer than 100 people. They said that the most vulnerable workers in America draws no protection from the mandate if his company employs 99 workers or fewer. Engelhart noted the reason why. Because, as even OSHA admits, companies of 100 or more employees will be better able to administer and sustain the mandate. Now, that may very well be true. But this kind of thinking belies the premise that any of this is truly an emergency. Indeed, under-inclusiveness of this sort is often regarded as a telltale sign that the government interest in enacting a liberty-restraining pronouncement is not, in fact, compelling. Now, the court adds that the under-inclusive nature of the mandate implies that the mandate's true purpose is not to enhance workplace safety, but instead to ramp up vaccine uptake by any means necessary. That, in fact, is how the White House presented the mandate in September. The aim, it said, was to reduce the number of unvaccinated Americans by using regulatory powers and other actions to substantially increase the number of Americans covered by 
vaccination requirements. Now, the petitioners argued that the workplace safety was merely a pretext for accomplishing that goal, and the Fifth Circuit is clearly inclined to agree. After the president voiced his displeasure with the country's vaccination rate in September, Judge Hengelhardt said, The administration poured over the U.S. code in search of authority or some kind of workaround for imposing a national vaccine mandate, and the, the vehicle it just happened to land on was an OSHA ETS. In addition to exceeding OSHA's statutory authority, the Fifth Circuit said the ETS likely exceeds the federal government's authority under the Commerce Clause because it regulates non-economic inactivity, i.e. the decision to forego vaccination. That falls squarely within state police power. Furthermore, the court said, concerns over separation of powers, principles, cast doubt over the mandate's assertion of virtually unlimited power to control individual conduct under the guise of a workplace regulation. Now, the ETS, Engelhardt said, derives its authority from an old statute employed in a novel manner. It imposes nearly $3 billion in compliance costs. It involves broad medical considerations that lie outside of OSHA's core competencies and purports to definitively resolve one of today's most hotly debated political issues. Yet, there is no clear expression of congressional intent to convey OSHA such broad authority, and this court will not infer one. And in a concurring opinion, Judge Duncan emphasized that the court expects Congress to speak clearly when authorizing an agency to exercise powers of a vast economic and political significance. He thinks whether Congress could enact such a sweeping mandate under its interstate commerce power would pose a hard question, but whether OSHA can do that does not. Now, the circuit court lottery will be held on Tuesday. I I'm still not sure what will happen if a permanent injunction is issued in the Texas case beforehand, but in any event, the lottery should be broadcast on uh, Zoom, I guess kind of like a Powerball draw, and so uh, so much really turns on which number is drawn, and a little bit more transparency would be helpful. But in either case, this matter may get to the Supreme Court by the end of November. Now you may be asking yourself, what the hell is the Circuit Court Lottery? And I'm going to guess since constitutional lawyer uh, Josh Blackman, I noticed recently on Twitter, jokingly posted a tweet saying this means that Chief Justice Roberts will be picking a court by drawing a number out of a hat, and a lot of people seem to think that he was being serious, suggests that this may be something worth trying to talk about and break down. Now, it is a pretty complicated and convoluted process, but I have tried to break it down here step by step and explain what will happen for you guys in a manner that should hopefully be understandable for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. And following the Fifth Circuit stay uh, that we were just talking about, the next step to a permanent injunction will be this so-called circuit court lottery. Now, the first thing to note is that litigation would bypass the federal district court and rather 
pursuant to 29 U.S.C. Section 655, Subsection F, a pre-enforcement standard will challenge beginning in a court of appeals. And any person who may be adversely affected by a standard issued under this section may, at any time prior to the 60th day after such standard is promulgated, file a petition challenging the validity of that standard with the United States Court of Appeals for the circuit wherein such person resides or has his principal place of business for a judicial review of such standard. A copy of that petition shall be forthwith transmitted by the clerk of the court to the secretary. The filing of such petition shall not, unless otherwise ordered by the court, operate as a stay of the standard. The determination of the secretary shall be conclusive if supported by substantial evidence in the record considered as a whole. But, as you might suspect, many petitions will likely be filed in several different courts of appeals. So, the second thing to consider is that under 28 U.S.C. section 2112 subsection A, it provides that multiple challenges to the ETS standard will be consolidated into a single court of appeals. But which court of appeals? Well, the answer is kind of complicated, but I will try to explain it here. Uh, essentially, the Judicial Panel on Multi-District Litigation, also known as the JPML, will decide in which circuit the case will be consolidated, and that is according to 28 U.S.C. Section 2112, Subsection A3, which explains that this process will be random and as follows. If an agency, board, commission, or officer receives two or more petitions for review, of an order in accordance with the agency board commission or officer shall promptly, after the expiration of the 10-day period specified, so notify the JPML authorized by Section 1407 of Title 28 in such form as the panel shall prescribe. And keep that in mind, Section 1407 of Title 28, we'll be getting to that next. Anyways, this goes on. The Judicial Panel on Multi-District Litigation shall, by means of random selection, designate one Court of Appeals from among the Courts of Appeals in which the petitions for review have been filed and received within the 10-day period specified, in which the record is to be filed, and shall issue an order consolidating the petitions for review in that Court of Appeals. Now, while that comment I mentioned earlier about Chief Justice John Roberts drawing a number from a hat was just something in jest, it's actually not terribly far off from what will be taking place. Now, according to Rule 25.5a uh, of the JPML, and this is getting back to that section I told you to bear in mind, 28 U.S.C. Section 1407, that is where this rule is located. And as this rule states, upon filing a notice of multi-circuit petition for review, the clerk of the panel shall randomly select a circuit court of appeals from a drum containing an entry for each circuit wherein a constituent petition for review is pending. Multiple petitions for review pending in a single circuit shall be allotted only a single entry in the drum. 
A designated deputy other than the random selector shall witness the random selection. So, what is the JPML, you might ask? Well, simply it's just a group of seven judges that are selected by the Chief Justice that has the authority to determine how to consolidate a civil action. Now, if the case ends up going to one of the traditionally more conservative circuit courts, uh, there can and likely will still be motion practice to transfer the case uh, under 28 U.S.C. Section 2112, uh, which says, in accordance with this in particular, the panel selection of a circuit is just a starting point. The statute says the selected circuit can transfer the cases for the convenience of parties in the interest of justice according to 28 U.S.C. Section 2112, Subsection A5. Put to practice, the circuit court weighs a mix of factors, including the location of counsel, location of the parties, whether the impact of the litigation is local to one region, whether one circuit is more familiar with the same parties and issues or related issues than other courts, the caseload of the respective courts, and wherein there is but one truly aggrieved party. But winning the lottery essentially puts your thumb on the scale. Courts typically respect a petitioner's choice to file a petition for review in a particular circuit, creating something of a presumption against transfer. So, despite the possibility of transfer, getting the lottery procedure right in the first instance will be essential. And a lot will turn on how this random lottery works. However, as the Chief Justice sets the JPML panel, the process has a preference for the D.C. Circuit. And, finally, prior to the random lottery, a single circuit court can stay the rule, and that stay would remain in effect for some time. And for this, we take into consideration 28 U.S.C. Sub, uh, section 2112, subsection A4, which says, Any court of appeals in which the proceeding with respect to an order of an agency, board, commission, or officer have been instituted may, to the extent authorized by law, stay the effective date of the order. Any such stay may thereafter be modified, revoked, or extended by a court of appeals designated with respect to that order or by any other court of appeals in which the proceedings are transferred. So imagine that a suit is filed in the Fifth Circuit and a panel stays the rule prior to a 10-day period that stay would remain in effect while the JPML chooses a circuit, and at that point, there would have to be a briefing in the new circuit, which could then choose to vacate the stay, and invariably, the Supreme Court can take shadow docket action on the case at any time. And finally, if the cases are consolidated, Supreme Court review becomes far simpler, and presumably, the court could issue a stay from the shadow docket, though I still think 
that an expedited hearing on their docket would be to everyone's benefit. Uh, now, none of these complicated rules will govern a challenge to CMS regulations if the states can file these suits in their forum of choice. All right, well, anyways, that is going to do it for me here today. Uh, I want to thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, I hope that was able to help uh, clarify this issue for you. Uh, now, if you have any further questions about any of this, please feel free to leave me a comment down below. Uh, let me know. I will be happy to do my very best to answer your questions as best I can. Uh, otherwise, uh, just if you want to leave any comments uh, with your thoughts about the show, the topic, uh, just whatever, really. I really do love hearing from you guys down in the comments, and I love having a chat, uh, a chance to uh, talk with you guys, have a little bit of back and forth. Uh, so uh, please take a moment, leave me a comment, let me know what you thought. And, uh, you know, if you liked the video, you can go ahead and hit that uh, thumbs up button. If you hated it, you can go hit that thumbs down button. Uh, if you're not subscribed to the channel, please consider just taking a second and subscribing. Uh, make sure you always find out when I get my latest videos out. And if you are able to go the extra mile and help out by becoming a supporter of the show by either becoming a patron over on Patreon for as little as two bucks a month or making like a one-time uh, donation in my tip jar over on PayPal, uh, that is very much appreciated. And if you can't do that, that's all right. I totally understand. I still do really appreciate you coming by and spending some of your time here today with me all the same. So, uh, yeah, until next time, uh, I have been Locking Liberal. This has been Categorical Imperatives, and we have been talking about the OSHA-Biden vaccine mandate. And uh, as always, Delinda S. Cathago. Mercury. Mercury.